Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It is Friday, folks. You made it. Congratulations. Another week in the books. It is February the 18th, the year of our Lord, 2022, about halfway through February, a little more, getting to the end of it, getting closer and closer to spring, getting closer to the light of spring and summer until the federal government steps in and takes an hour away from us. But let's talk about that some other time. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Welcome to Herd Tell. We've got a lot of stories we want to turn the noise down on today. We're going to talk a little bit about all the $6 trillion the government rained down on coronavirus relief and how they're now trying desperately to figure out where all the fraud and waste went in that entire batch of money that was as much as the entire federal budget the year before coronavirus hit. Kind of a big mess, and shame nobody predicted it. Oh, wait a minute, we did, because every time you do something under the guise of do something, this happens. We'll cover that story. Um, Also, we're going to touch back in with the Ahmaud Aubrey case. The federal hate crimes trial, civil rights trial is going on now. We need to turn down the noise on this a little bit. We need to talk about why race was not brought up in the criminal trial, why it's being brought up now. And we're going to actually read some of the material that is being brought out in this trial, what the McMichaels were saying. We need to be very, very clear that, yes, this was a racially motivated killing. And anybody saying otherwise is just not paying attention. We'll touch on that story. Also, we always end on a good or a happy note. This is a great one. Story from the Super Bowl. Uh, Van Jefferson, wide receiver, caught four balls then had to run out of the stadium to go catch his son because his wife went into labor, had to be carted from the stadium to the hospital. Everybody's healthy and happy. Great story to end the program. But first, uh, we're going to start with this story. Uh, You know, this is a partnership. If you don't listen, we don't have anybody to talk to. And we love when you give us things to view and think about and even bring up on the show. Our friend uh, who tweets at Blame Big Government, been a friend of the program from the very beginning, he tweeted this, uh, listening to a segment of Her Tell Show, appreciate you listening, prompted an interesting exercise. Looking back over the last couple of years, thinking about industry and government, how has essential and non-essential been validated or redefined? Now, you remember during the pandemic when we did these, they weren't fully shutdowns, but the state and local and federal government decided to pick and choose which businesses were essential and which ones were not. As a matter of fact, the uh, Department of Homeland Security actually made two lists, essential and non-essential. Their guidance for essential to infrastructure was things like big box stores, pharmacies, supermarkets, convenience stores, garbage collection, healthcare, daycare, hardware, gas station, banks, post office, vet clinics, farmers markets and food banks, educational institutions. Remember that one. We'll come back to it in a minute. Businesses that provide necessary necessary shelter and economic disadvantaged people, transportation, warehousing, agriculture. It's a long list. Then they had another list, non-essential things, and this varied 
state to state a little bit, but this was pretty universal. Theaters, gyms, salons and spas, museums, casinos, shopping malls, bowling alleys, sporting and concert venues. And then there were the ones that varied from region to region that really became flashpoints. Restaurants and bars, liquor stores. Uh, One of these days, we're going to talk about the ABC system and the tyranny that is. Industrial manufacturer not related to essential function. There's that word again. Construction, labor unions, marijuana dispensaries, gun stores, and home office supplies. Here's the problem with that. If your main income was working in one of those facilities or being a provider to one of those facilities or having something to do with one of those facilities that were named unessential, it's pretty essential to you because now you can't work. And there was a little bit of a disconnect between the folks that could do jobs from home remotely and could not. And there were other issues. I've told the story before. The schools, the elementary and high school in my district is right across the street from a grocery store and shopping center. Now, I understand there was needs to maybe do precautions at school. But it was also something that folks noticed that teachers and parents cannot go in the schools because it's a deadly zone. But all those same people can congregate at the grocery store and Starbucks across the street every day, the exact same amount of people. Maybe we could have come up with a better way to do things instead of not having school in that district for 15 months. These are all questions folks have. What's essential? What's not essential? And when we have kids with two-year education gaps, we now know that education was essential and we probably should have come up with a better plan. Nevertheless, this also falls under something we talk about a lot, government accountability, what government can and can't do. Government did a lot under the auspices of emergency power. And one of those emergency powers was for one of the first times in history, or at least since World War II and rationing in the 70s, they picked and choose what businesses were essential and were not. So let's go out to Wisconsin. Some of the states are pushing back. Uh, In Wisconsin, they have a bill called Assembly Bill 912. Now, a lot of other states, including North Carolina, have similar bills they're working on to curb emergency power. But under this bill, Assembly Bill 912 aims to ensure all businesses are treated equally during an emergency declaration by the government. It would also eliminate the economic hardship endured by small businesses ordered to close while their big box competitors remained open for business. And the gripe here, taking a pause from the piece, is if you have a big box store, they were considered essential. Of course, most of those companies have money, power, and lobbying firms. Whereas the local stores that sold the exact same commerce were told they had to shut down or were given onerous regulations that they couldn't possibly match up to. Quote, small business owners here in Wisconsin are behind this bill because it's a simple win. It would eliminate the essential and non-essential designation, said Bill Smith, National Federation of Independent Businesses, Wisconsin State Director. That means that state governments can no longer choose winners and losers. The state mainly followed the U.S. Homeland Security guidance. That's the one I just read you. That was a portion of it. Go read it for yourself. Hospitals, pharmacies, public safety, and supermarkets made the list, and so did veterinary clinics and big box retailers like Cole and Home Depot, but a lot of small businesses, from the restaurants and bars to salons and specialty retailers, didn't. They were ordered to close or dramatically reduce operations. One of the most challenging parts of COVID mandates here in Wisconsin have been the arbitrary designation by the state government. Let's dig in on that word. Yes, it was arbitrary. They were saying things like, we follow the science and we follow experts. But it was arbitrary in the state of North Carolina. We never did get out of Governor Cooper, who exactly the experts were. If we're going to shut down businesses and affect people's livelihoods, especially for months on end, it cannot be arbitrary and it cannot just be under the guise of emergency power. A lot of states are trying to get those emergency powers reined into things like 30 day windows, things like this. But the essential and non-essential thing that our friend brings up, it shouldn't be on the government anyway. This should be thought out carefully focused regulation 
and legislation by the representatives of the people so that the next time we have an emergency, we know exactly what is essential and not essential. This is a basic form of government, knowing what to do in an emergency before the emergency happens. So if we're not staying on top of our legislators and governors and city councils and county commissions to clearly lineate and distinguish what they would do if we ever have another crisis like this, they are failing in their duties to the people that they represent. There is no excuse for us to not have a plan for the next pandemic or the next crisis or the next situation that might call for economic disruption. We have data, we have experience, and we ought to go get some legislation to match it so that we know exactly what our government can and cannot do. And they cannot just come down and tell people this is what we're doing because unnamed experts or moving and constantly changing science says so. Put it in black and white. Hopes and dreams and rhetoric aren't legislation. Put it in black and white. The people deserve to know what you're going to do ahead of time. And that way they can hold you accountable if you overstep the line. What businesses are essential and non-essential? I'm not sure that's the government's business. Either it's safe to open them or it's not. And everything else is arbitrary and an unnecessary burden that the people and the businesses had to bear. And we shouldn't have to do it again. Get on your legislators, get on your representatives, get on your elected officials and demand they have a plan for next time. Otherwise, we're not going to have an excuse when they screw us over the next time, because there will be a next time. More hotel right after this. Going back to Hurtel, you know, we always touch back in on stories that we've covered, and we did a lot of talking about the Ahmad Arbery killing, uh, the murder of him by the McMichaels and another associate who wasn't directly involved in the killings, but was there and is also getting a life sentence. Uh, we want to touch back in with this because the civil rights violation trial, the hate crimes trial, some are calling it, is underway right now. There's an important distinction to break down here, and a lot of people are asking about it, so we wanted to touch on it and turn the noise down a little bit. When they did the criminal trial, the prosecutors made a point to not get into the racial stuff. And by racial stuff, we mean the clear and present history of the McMichaels and their prejudices and their outright racist things they have said on social media, publicly, video, and other places. The prosecutors at the time decided not to bring any of that into the trial on the criminal charges. That was probably the smart legal decision. It was also probably the prudent tactical and strategic decision. That also upsets a lot of people because anybody with a functional frontal cortex can tell that there was a racial element to this crime. So let's unpack this for just a second because it's very delicate. And we want to treat it with a whole lot of respect because of what's involved here. The prosecutor's job was to get a conviction against people who were clearly guilty. Now, they were entitled to their offense. They had their day in court. But anybody that watched that video, anybody that read through the reports by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and others, knew exactly what had happened to Ahmaud Arbery. They hunted him down at every point. The McMichaels escalated that situation. They hunted him down. They made him run till he could run no more. Run no more is a direct quote from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation testimony and the pretrial motions. And when he couldn't run anymore, he tried to defend himself and they killed him. I've never used the word before, but I had to use it in my writing because we have to call things what it was. This was a modern day lynching. A couple of white guys decided that a black man had no business in their neighborhood. They piled on years and years and years of their own prejudices and biases and ignorant and hate, and they applied it all to the head of Ahmaud Aubrey. 
because he dared not do what they told him to do when he had they had no right to tell Ahmad Aubrey what to do or where he could go. Ahmad Aubrey had rights, and they had no right to take his rights from him. This was a modern-day lynching, and I'm not going to call it anything else because that's exactly what it was. But they weren't charged with a lynching. They were charged with murder, and they were convicted on murder because the prosecution did an outstanding job of bringing that case. Now, I know to us in the civilian world that don't understand the law, that might seem insufficient, especially to folks that this really hits home on. Racial prejudice, outright racism, hatred. It's really ugly stuff, and we want there to be justice for that. But you didn't get justice in the court of law because that's not what they were charged with. They were charged with murder. They were convicted of murder. They're going to spend the rest of their lives in prison for that murder, justly. This case is not about the murders. This case is about the why of the murders. And now all of this is coming to light. I'm going to read a few parts of it because there's still people on the Internet swearing up and down this case had nothing to do with race. They've gone few and far between. They're not out in force like they were before the video came out. And they're not out in force like they were before the trial when the McMichaels pretty much be clowned themselves and laid out their hatred for all the world to see about what kind of people they were. From the Washington Post, uh, and I am going to censor some of the language here. If you want to read it yourself, that's up to you, but I'm going to censor it a little bit. On Tuesday, the first day of the government's witness testimony, the jury heard from the Centilla Shores resident who lived near the scene of the shooting and did not see Aubrey as a threat. They had seen him go. Um, Albenzi, a longtime neighbor who had called the police after seeing Aubrey in the under construction home, confirmed he had done so, but he also testified he had called a non-emergency police number and he did not think Aubrey was doing anything other than looking around. Another resident who is also white said he is a frequent runner who often jogged through the neighborhood without arousing suspicion from the neighborhood. Cross-examining Richard Dial, an investigator with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Earlier when I was quoting the, he can't, he ran until he couldn't run anymore. That was Richard Dial's testimony in the pretrial hearing. Defense lawyers sought to establish that there had been reports of stolen items, including guns and other things from the neighborhood. Prosecutors noted Travis McMichael sought to blame Aubrey personally for the theft of his gun on January 1st, 2020, even though a white person was suspected of similar thefts from the neighborhood. On Wednesday, George heard testimony from a friend who rendered Travis McMichael being angry. The friend, Derek Thompson, recounting sending Travis McMichael a video of the gun the day was stolen, which showed a black person lighting a firecracker. Travis McMichael sent an angry response back. He said, am I required by law to read that? This is the guy testifying. He did not want to read this in court. Told to proceed by the judge, Thomas spelled out the N-word instead of saying it out loud as he read Travis McMichael's message. The defendant wished that the black man's head had been blown off. I'm reading this context on purpose because there are still people who are saying this case didn't have anything to do about race. No, they weren't prosecuted based on race because it was a murder trial. But you're just kidding yourself. If you think the wicked hearts of these men were not fed hatred through their own racist and prejudiced views of the world, they saw a black man. And when he didn't do what they told him to do, all that hate came pouring out until they murdered him. I don't know if this trial is the right way to get justice for that, because I don't think there is earthly justice for what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey. But I'm glad it's being aired publicly, and I'm glad at least some folks are going to have to deal with this, look it in the eye, and do a self-realization that this stuff still exists in the world and needs to be defeated and needs to be prosecuted. And we need to be ever vigilant to make sure we never, ever tolerate it. 
because if you give it an inch, it will always end up in violence. More Hurtel right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Hurtel. He's back, uh, our favorite public defender. Uh, doing God's work on the pointy end of the legal system, our buddy uh, Zeke Webster. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Andrew. Nice to see you. The system hasn't ground you down yet, I hope. You're doing okay down there? Uh, I think so. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Good deal. wanted to ask you about this because we were kicking around on Twitter uh, yesterday. There was a hearing, and you already know my stance on hearings. I think there's nothing more worthless in most cases than a senatorial hearing. They're trying to uh, pass a couple of judges. Uh, and in fact, they were doing three judges, but everybody was focusing on one appointee, uh, Nina Morrison. She's an appointee for the Eastern District up in New York, I believe. And we watched senator after senator on the Republican side start attacking her as being soft on crime because she wants to get people out of jail. The problem here is this is not just a criminal defense attorney. This is a woman who has spent 20 years on the Innocence Project, all the people she's getting out of jail are innocent. You know more about the Innocence Project than I do. You deal with the part of the uh, criminal justice system that tends to lap up quite a few innocent people or at least trump up worse than maybe the crimes they did. Explain for us, when you hear that as an attorney and as a defender, uh, Innocence Project and getting that lumped in with rising crime, how that lands with you. I, I mean... It's one of those things where it's so wrong that it's kind of hard to know where to start. Uh, but it's it's not something that a serious person would say. And uh, honestly, I, you know, I suspect that these senators, you know, I suspect they don't really believe what they're saying. If they do, that is probably worse. But the fact is, for somebody that has been convicted in court by a jury uh, and exhausted their appeals and all this kind of stuff to then prove actual innocence with the amount of conclusive evidence that you would need to actually have your sentence overturned and be released. That's not happening on technicalities. It's not happening on close cases or anything like that. It's happening in cases primarily because of DNA evidence where you have absolute, you know, scientific proof that this is not the person that did it. So the, the kind of cases that the innocence project takes and the kind of cases where they actually win. I mean, those, those are cases where people spend decades in prison convicted of horrible, horrible crimes that they had absolutely nothing to do with whatsoever. And it's, you know, it's not a left liberal, uh, you know, out there position to say that that's a horrible thing to have happen to anyone anywhere. And that not only is it good work to uh, release free people from prison who have been wrongfully convicted, but that it's it's awful that the work needs to be done in the first place and that we need to do more to uh, uh, compensate people to uh, compensate people that have this happen to them for what they went through and to prevent it from happening to other people in the future. And, you know, again, like like I'm a public defender. I, I have a bunch of unpopular opinions about the criminal justice system. I'm aware of that. I understand it. I don't expect, you know, Ted Cruz and the like to to like what I do for a living or to think that what I do for a living is good. But when you're talking about somebody that has spent, spent 20 years getting factually innocent people out of prison, that uh, th there's just not an honest way to think of that as a, 
as as a bad thing to do. And it's especially ridiculous to try and somehow blame that for rising crime rates or anything like that. I also find it, see, this this is one of those things with me where um, I think this is just beyond politics. I think this gets into performative and it gets into people trying to make things that aren't there. Like, this is incongruent to me because if you have people who won't discuss things like how our criminal justice system is better at making criminals than it is at exonerating innocent people. And we've talked about that with you before, because you're on the, the uh, public defender side of that, where people get sucked in the system and don't have a way out in a lot of cases. And then they want to turn around and do this of all people against somebody. And I really don't care if she's a liberal or a progressive jurist as it like, I, I don't really care at this point, just the innocence project and trying to exonerate innocent people is not rising the crime rate. Like that's the opposite of the crime rate. If we're going to argue, and I do on this program, and some of my friends on the right get a little aggravated with me, if we're going to argue that part of the problem with the criminal justice system, justice system is we're making more criminals than we are preventing crime, the Innocence Project sure seems like to be one of those things we should be kind of bipartisan on, like, yeah, let's get all the innocent people out of the system. Well, sure. And I mean, you know, the, correlate, the corollary to that is that uh, every time somebody is wrongfully convicted of a rape or a murder or something like that, that means that the person who really did it got away with it. If uh, Cruz and, and Hawley and Cotton were, you know, trying in good faith to talk factually about crime and punishment and the legal system and so forth, they might care about that, but that's not what they're doing. They're just trying to, you know, get uh, get attention and to make political hay out of how all these terrible liberals are letting criminals get out and making our streets more dangerous and whatever the demagoguery currently is. Never mind the fact that they're letting people out who didn't actually do what they were in prison for. Uh, it's it's disgusting. Yeah, we're talking to our buddy Zeke Webster, who's an attorney and a public defender on purpose. He's not one of those guys that doesn't have a better option. He's passionate about this kind of stuff just to get rid of that trope. Um, To be clear here, we're working off the reporting of Jennifer Bendery and a couple other people because the way the Senate hearing, we probably won't have the transcript for this for a day or two. So if any of this proves inaccurate, we'll go back and touch on it. But I want to touch on a couple of the things that are being said in this uh, based off the reporting. Um, I, I like the way she wrote it, so I'll just read it verbatim. Murderers, throwing rocks, gasoline, assault, looters, rioting, those are all in quotes. Holly's just over here saying a string of scary words about crimes as Morrison sits there. Uh, I can't accept your support, your nomination, or anyone else who has softened crime. Holly dramatically declared it just because it is, and this is a quote, pattern with this administration. Uh, there's a way to attack the Biden administration. We know Joe Biden had a lot to do with the 90s crime bill, which is a big part of where we're at in, in criminal justice and social justice right now. That's its own separate thing. But this is just kind of lazy rhetoric, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is kind of a trope that you see in the politics of um, of uh, of crime and uh, the politics of the legal system and so on and so forth that is kind of built around this assumption that you have on the one hand good, honest, law-abiding citizens, and then on the other hand you have criminals, which are a totally distinct group from the first group. And they are dangerous people, and you need to keep the first group safe from the second group. And that's what this is all about. And I don't think, to begin with, you know, I don't think that that way of looking at the world is at all supported by any kind of facts about how um, different types of crimes do and don't actually take place. But 
it's a way of thinking about the world that I think has a lot of kind of emotional pull for especially people on the political right. And what I think is going on here is just they're just firing off buzzwords that fit into that frame. That if somebody has been convicted of murder and they went to prison and now these terrible liberals are letting them out. And the fact that they didn't actually murder anybody, is not, it doesn't matter when in terms of the, the type of political rhetoric and the type of um, uh, political positioning that is coming from these particular people, because it's, it's not about any kind of good faith effort to do anything. It's just there was a bunch of bad, scary criminals out there and we want to lock them up. And those liberals and Joe Biden want to let them go. And that's all the argument is. Let's drill down on that, though, because I find it one of the reasons I talk about people ask me is like, well, you know, why do you talk about things like, you know, prosecution cases and Supreme Court? I don't think people realize it, and I realize it because I've had it happen to people I love. So maybe that's why I have a, an understanding of it. You're one police officer having a cranky day. You're one overzealous prosecutor. Your one mistake, I don't care how righteous your life is, you are one misstep away from going into a system, and then you're you're at the mercy of the system. You can get a bad judge. You can get bad representation. You can get bad counsel. There's all kinds of good people that did a bad thing that wind up in the criminal justice system. How do we change the language and the, and the paradigm on this thing? Like you just said, there's too many people that just want to be like, oh, criminals are this subclass of human beings way over there. They're not, though. They're your friends, your neighbors, your family members. They're one addiction, one mistake, one accident away from being a criminal by the letter of the law. How do we change that perception? I mean, uh, I don't really know. Uh, all I know how to do is to just keep you know, <laughs> saying this kind of thing to everybody that's willing to listen to me. But uh, and the one thing I'd, I'd add to that is it's not just I don't even think it's true that everybody is like one mistake away. I think if you go through the criminal statutes of pretty much any state in the nation, you will find that almost everyone, in fact, I, I think probably everyone has at minimum committed crimes and gotten away with it and most likely committed felonies and got away with it. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's a rapist or a murderer, but there's a lot more that is a violation of the criminal code than that. And almost certainly you and I and everybody else you might talk to in your day to day have done things that are a technically a violation of the criminal law. Most of us get away with it. And, uh, you know, for most of it, it's, it's kind of assumed that you get away with it. And that's the fact that most people get away with it is what makes it okay to have laws that are constructed in the ways that they are. But, I, you know, I think that it's really important to think about it that way. And also to think about the fact that even when you're talking about much more serious crimes, like your, your rapes and your murders and your things like that, uh, these sorts of things are almost are, are usually done by people who are themselves the victims of crimes to people that they know uh, there. You know, there's the, the kind of an image of the, you know, the scary guy on the street street corner or somebody cruising around in an unmarked van picking up kids or whatever it may be. And it's not that there's no truth at all to that. But most of the time, everything is a lot more human and a lot more uh, intimate and in a way normal. That they just these are things that people sometimes do for all sorts of different reasons, some some better and worse than others. And you know, for that reason, I think that you have to you have to think about people that are accused of crimes, both who have done that and who haven't, as people and and see the commonality we share and the ways in which the system that we have constructed is not very good at recognizing any of those realities. 
Yeah, Zeke Webster's joining us, our friend who always touches in with us on matters of criminal justice. Uh, when we come back, we're going to delve into that system a little bit more. We're going to talk about the confirmation hearing process. It keeps coming up in the news. We better deal with it. We'll talk about this nominee specifically and talk more about the Innocent Project and our Congress creators who are, by the way, all lawyers themselves in this particular case, not covering themselves in legal glory. We'll get into all that. Zeke Webster right after this. back to her tell we're talking about this nina morrison hearing to be fair she was actually up with three other judges because this was going to be kind of a pro forma type of nomination hearing but uh it's televised and senators are running for president so we got to get it on tv is this a healthy way to do judges i know by law and by the constitution we have to do a nomination process but is there a better way to do this should this be off camera should it be a select committee of senators instead of you know the standing judiciary committee because it seems like, and I'm bringing this up for a reason, because we're getting ready to do a Supreme Court uh, nomination process, and we all know how much fun and games those are. Is there a better way to do this? I know the law prescribes a lot of this, but there's got to be some tweaking we can do to this, right? feels like there's got to be. Uh, I mean, I think that we've reached a point where judicial confirmation hearings are almost entirely useless. Um, and I mean, this is, this is low even by the standards of modern judicial confirmation hearings. But it's it it's a broken process that that doesn't really provide any kind of meaningful information to the public, doesn't leave us with a particular with a with a better federal bench than we would have if the process as it exists didn't happen at all. Um, I don't know exactly what a better system looks like, but it's it's hard to imagine it being worse. Yeah, let's talk about this specific nominee for just a second. Again, I don't know. I haven't dug into her caseload because. They're not attacking her on her judicial views. If she was, then we'd take those up in discussion. That's what you do in a normal hearing. You take their volley of work and go, okay, this person is uh, way too bad on this issue, da 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 But they're not doing that. They're attacking her for being part of the Innocence Project. But I'm looking at her, her uh, CV, if you will, here. Uh, Yale undergrad, New York U Law School. She clerked for the Second Circuit. There's been people with lots thinner resumes get uh, district judgeships, uh, lifetime appointments. She has been a part of the Innocence Project for 20 years plus. It's the bulk of her career work. If you're going to attack her on anything, you could say maybe she doesn't have that much appellate experience. But as you were telling me earlier when we were prepping for this, the way the Innocence Project has to get people out of prison, that is heavy appellate work. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, there, there's not really a, I don't think that there's a serious attack to be made on whether uh, somebody with this resume has enough experience to be a federal judge. Uh, and that's why that's not what we're seeing. We're just seeing, seeing demagoguery about, you know, how we need to be tougher on crime. And apparently that includes locking up people for things that they didn't do. I hate to do this because I don't normally like to just work off tweets, but we have to because this is a live hearing that's going on when we're recording this. I'm working off the uh, reporting of Jennifer Bendery, who's an excellent uh, legal reporter for Huffington Post. There's two items I want to bring to your attention and get your reaction to. The first one was uh, Ted Cruz. And again, the three major offenders we're talking about here are uh, Josh Hawley of Northern Virginia, but ostensibly from Missouri, even though he doesn't live there. Uh, Ted Cruz of Texas and uh, Tom Cotton of Arkansas, by the way, all three of those guys are going to be running for president in a couple of years, or at least thinking about it. Ted Cruz already has. Ted Cruz uh, attacked her for being soft on crime. Uh, Morrison noted, uh, and I'm going to quote here from the reporting, uh, she said that in Cruz's home state, 
Republicans, because it's a Republican-controlled state, unanimously passed a law named after one of her former clients who helped wrongfully accuse people access, access exculpatory evidence in cases when proven misconduct. And then Tom Cotton had this exchange, and this is the one that really kind of burned me up, and I want your reaction to it. Uh, Tom Cotton, this is a direct quote. Are you proud that you encouraged such defiance in convicted murderers, he asked, uh, referencing the man executed in Arkansas who made a snarky comment to the warden before being put to death. Morrison noted that there was, quote, significant DNA evidence this man who was executed, Lendl Lee, I actually remember when that case hit the news, was innocent. Cotton knew this, but he just kept describing the details of the heinous crime he was guilty of. Cotton acting out of outrage said, quote, compelling evidence that the courts somehow overlooked. Morrison replied, I've repped many people exonerated by DNA evidence who lost dozens of appeals in courts because DNA wasn't available. Cotton comes back and says this. This is a direct quote. He was convicted based on eyewitness testimony. I'll remind everybody, Tom Cotton is an attorney. He's a member of the bar. He knows better than this. Morrison calmly replied, this is another direct quote, eyewitness identification, which you referenced, is actually the single leading proven cause of wrongful conviction. I've got nothing here. Why in the world are you going to the wall for people who either are innocent or there's some suspicion of innocent and acting like they don't have a legal right to try to prove they're innocent down the wall, especially somebody with a death sentence? You know, if you convict them, fine. And we could talk about the death penalty, some other case. But if if I think I'm innocent and I got convicted to death, I think I'm going to let a snarky comment slide on, don't you? Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party is a party that talks an awful lot about freedom. And, you know, it's hard to imagine uh, a more thorough level of deprivation of that for the government to publicly claim that you did a horrible thing you didn't do. And then destroy, you know, destroy your reputation, convince a huge number of people that you're a total monster, lock you in a cage for decades and then take your life. And that's that's a, a level of mistreatment by the government, a level of tyranny that uh, most of us can can barely even imagine happening to ourselves, especially, you know, for people that live comfortable lives and worry about how much they're going to have to pay in taxes the next year or something like that. We're talking about somebody who's had their entire life, their entire reputation completely destroyed by the government over nothing, over either a mistake at best, or maybe even something more malicious than that. I think the, the least... <laughs> that somebody in that situation should be able to get is a snarky comment about what happened to them. But beyond that, I'd say that, you know, the, um, the, you know, the United States Congress in the nineties passed uh, something called the uh, anti-terror. I'm trying to get there. It's right. I believe it's the uh, anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act, which specifically makes it more difficult for people that have been convicted of, of serious crimes to raise uh, uh, appellate challenges claiming that they had been wrongfully convicted. And the uh, sorts of conservative judges that uh, Cruz and, and Cotton and Hawley support putting on the Supreme Court uh, have been very consistent in their jurisprudence that, they, that, uh, that they've said that some of them have said that it is not a violation of the Constitution for an innocent person to be uh, to be put to death for something they didn't do. And so, I, in fact, I think that there's some level where they've been fairly consistent, that they they're um, they make it more difficult for people who have been wrongfully convicted to uh, press claims of innocence. And then when they uh, when these procedural bars are successful and they allow states to execute innocent people, then these particular senators act like uh, it's uh, somehow offensive to their sensibilities for the innocent person to even say anything 
unkind about the government that took their life for nothing. And um, yeah, I, I don't really have anything more to say because I think that that kind of behavior to describe it is to refute it and to should give you a pretty clear idea of how I feel about people that do sorts of things like that with public life. To loop this back to where we started and to bring it to more of a practical level, though, when we have our elected officials dealing with the criminal justice system like this, and I know it's a I know it's a hearing, so it's performative, but people see this and they're going to run for office off these clips. And they're going to the reason they're saying this stuff is because they're going to put it in a fundraising clip. And by the end of this day, this will be on YouTube and Twitter and wherever. When you have our elected leaders talking about the criminal justice system like this, how much harder does that make it for somebody like you that's on the other end of it where you don't have the fancy hearings and you don't have the big courtrooms and you don't have the judgeships? You have real people in your communities that are getting put into a system that everything is against them and they don't have those resources like those lawyers sitting up on the dais in the Senate. And there really is innocent people getting wrapped up or it just as bad, in my opinion, you have people with petty crimes or mistakes that get turned into career criminals because of the way our system isn't being reformed. When everybody agrees it needs to be reformed, they just don't want to do the hard work for it. Talk about how that trickles down because the mess at the bottom is directly related to the lack of focus at the top for anybody to actually get any change going on this, isn't it? I mean, yeah, you, you see this attitude uh, on a daily basis at every level of the criminal justice system, or excuse me, the criminal legal system is what I prefer to call it. You know, I, it is a routine part of my job that I will have somebody accused of a relatively minor crime where I've been given no actual account of what the evidence against my client even looks like. And I'll be trying to, you know, get my client out of jail on a reduced bond so that they don't have to, uh, you know, serve their sentence before they even get a, uh, a day in court to be heard. And the default position of pretty much every DA that I have to deal with and most of the judges that I have to deal with is that the very fact that somebody has been charged means that whatever it is that the charging document alleges that they did, yeah, that must be true and that must be what happened. And we know that's not true. We know that you know people get things wrong, people are falsely accused. There's a lot of ways that, um, uh, that, that people who are entirely innocent can get charged with things. And the same attitude that you're seeing in these hearings, I mean, it creeps down into any kind of just day-to-day operation of any criminal court. If you go to court and watch, you'll you'll see it. I guarantee it. And um, I don't really know what the antidote is, other than that, you know, people need to pay attention. To, they need to pay attention to when uh, when we do find proof that uh, that outcomes were reached that were wrong. When we do see people get acquitted, and and just think about what that means for everybody else that's moving through the system, where for one reason or another that you don't quite get that that accounting. Yeah, I'll fall back on something even simpler because I'm not a lawyer like you. So I like little simple phrases so I can understand them better than all the Latin and so forth. But uh, they're telling us who they are, so we should just believe them. So when Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and whoever else sits up there, and I know they're lawyers, and I know they've all been in Congress for quite a while, and I know they know better than what they're saying, and they're telling me these things, I think I'll just believe them that this is what this is what they are. Um and I'll judge them accordingly. I hope everybody else does. Uh, Zeke Webster, we always appreciate your insight on things like this. You did this one on short notice. Really appreciate it. Let folks know where they can follow you on social media and elsewhere, my friend. Oh, I'm just uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Don Zico. Uh, I've published a couple things at uh, Ordinary Times and uh, Balls and Strikes. 
Uh, it's, it's not hard. Just give me a Google. <laughs> give him a Google. Uh, we always appreciate your time, my friend. Uh, you are consistent in your beliefs and I respect and appreciate it and look forward to having you on again. One of these days, we'll get you on something on a nice light topic that doesn't involve all this heavy stuff. But until then, we sure appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for staying with us. It's a theme on our show, government accountability. We line that up with personal accountability and corporate accountability, because guess what? If we had all three of those things, we wouldn't have a whole lot to talk about on this show. Alas, human nature is undefeated. We have been critical of all the money and funding that went through during the COVID pandemic and other times of emergency, not because it wasn't needed, not because you shouldn't do it, but because there wasn't due diligence done. And a lot of it was done under the guise of do something. And every time you have do something, you wind up with a mess. Well, lo and behold, here we go. The Washington Post uh, quote, this is the title of the piece, immense fraud. And that's in quotes, creates immense task for Washington as it tries to tighten scrutiny of $6 trillion in emergency coronavirus spending from the piece. I'm just going to take an excerpt. It's quite long. Uh, in Stamford, Connecticut, a 46-year-old resident pled guilty after putting a portion of $4 million in coronavirus aids towards the purchase of a Porsche and a Mercedes and a BMW. In Somerset, New Jersey, a 51-year-old woman allegedly invented employees, inflated wages, and fabricated entire tax filings to collect $1 million in loans. And in St. Petersburg, Florida, a federal judge sentenced to prison a 63-year-old man who obtained $800,000 on behalf of a business that did not exist. The cases and charges each announced over the past month count among the hundreds involving a slew of programs enacted by Congress in the darkest days of the coronavirus pandemic. Money dispatched with such urgency at the time that it is now putting Washington's watchdogs to the test. Roughly two years after lawmakers approved their first tranche, of rescue funds, the U.S. government is grappling with an unprecedented challenge how to oversee its own historic stimulus efforts. Now, we're going to pause right here for a second. You do realize that one of the chief goals of Congress is oversight, right? Moving on. Totaling nearly $6 trillion, the loans, grants, direct checks, and other emergency assistance summed to more than the entire federal budget in the fiscal year before the coronavirus arrived, creating a unique and long-term strain on the nation's policymakers to ensure the funds have been put to good use. Policymakers and economists widely agree that the investments helped, but the money remains hard to track. There are lingering questions as to whether it benefited those who needed it the most, and aid continues to be a ripe target for criminals nationwide to the full extent, which is only beginning to come to light. Folks, anytime somebody wants to do something under the guise of do something, or they ram it through as an emergency, and we don't do due diligence, and we the people are told to shut up and collar because don't you understand this is good for us every single time, without exception, this is what happens. They didn't do their due diligence. They didn't carefully craft the legislation. They didn't carefully focus the legislation. They just started raining money down to try to do something and to try to make themselves look good and to try to make themselves look like they were controlling a situation that we clearly now know they had no control over. Maybe we needed that much stimulus. But there had to be a better way to do it, a more focused way to do it, and a way that it actually went to help the people that needed it and not the same old characters, grifters, and power structures. We've already covered on this program how so much of that aid went to power structures 
and corporations and other entities that probably really didn't need it, but that's how money flows in our economy and in our businesses. They never thought about it. They just did it. And now we're all going to pay the consequences because guess whose taxpayer money is going to go to recouping those funds, investigating those funds and filling in the blanks on the balance sheets when it doesn't add up. We should hold our government accountable beforehand because holding them accountable after the fact almost never happens. More Hertel right after this. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. You know we always try to end on a good and happy note, and this is a very, very happy note. Hard to imagine a guy having a better day than this. Uh, we know we did the Super Bowl. We covered it. People were caterwauling about the halftime show, but this is a happy note. Uh, wide receiver Van Jefferson, he plays for the Rams. That means he is now a world champion, Super Bowl champion, and he has his ring. He got a little bit more than that on this Super Bowl Sunday. He had a son born to him. In fact, one of the NFL reporters who usually does things like injury reports, which happened during the game, and in fact, Van Jefferson had a good game, had multiple catches because other receivers like Odell Beckham Jr. went down hurt. She reported that earlier in the game, Van Jefferson's wife, Samaria, got carted out on a stretcher. Turns out she went into labor during the game. He finished the game, and there's a great scene. His kids are on the field with him, and they're celebrating, and everybody's running around and yelling, and he kneels down and says, we have to go right now, look around, enjoy the moment, and then we got to get going. Reading from Heavy.com, the NFL Network's Jefferson and his wife, who were high school sweethearts, are already parents to Bella Five. The couple previously announced that their second child is going to be a boy. Samaria, whose official due date was February 17th, spoke to The Atlantic about being 40 weeks pregnant heading into the Super Bowl and said, I feel pretty good. I'm definitely feeling 40 weeks pregnant. She kind of laughed. I'm definitely feeling the pressure and pain, nerves for Van, nerves for our family, but it's going to be okay. And as the Rams wide receiver said, I'm excited about it, excited to play in the Super Bowl as well. Two things going on. I'm happy about both of them. Maybe he can wait just a little longer until after the Super Bowl. He did, but barely. That's exactly what happened. Jefferson was selected in the second round of the 2020 draft, married Samaria just before his sophomore year in the NFL. It's all been crazy for sure, adjusting to life, marriage, new baby, all those things, but it's so great to see how well he manages it. Samaria said he's a great dad, a great team player, and all those things. I don't know how he does it, but he does it. Uh, The birth of Samaria and Jefferson's son will be all the more epic, knowing that the Rams came back to beat the Bengals 23-20, to clinching the Lombardi Trophy. While it's hard to make a dent on the offense with Cooper Cup and Odell Beckham Jr. already in the mix, Jefferson still finished regular season with 50 passes caught for 802 yards and six touchdowns. And one really huge fan, almost the only person that really matters if you're a football player, his head coach, Sean McVay, said, quote, he's a very gifted player. I think he's only gotten better, and he's gotten more confident, more experienced. He's made big plays, a bunch of crunch time catches for us. I think the future is really bright for this guy. He's only going to get the better. I love Van Jefferson. Good on him. Super Bowl champion, new father. Enjoy your son, my friend. Excellent work. Good job, Samaria. Hanging in there tough, playing hurt. End up going to the hospital and delivering a healthy baby boy. Congratulations to them. It's always good to get the good stuff in life amongst all the news of the culture and politics we cover here on Hertel. There's nothing better than the birth of a healthy child and the growing of a family. That's the good stuff in life. 
we'll always celebrate that sort of thing. That'll do it for Hertel today. That'll do it for Hertel for the week. So going in the weekend, uh, we hope you have good plans to do good things with those of you and yours that you love. Uh, if you missed any of the program this week, we had exceptional guests every afternoon. Good Talks, the interview-only portion of the program comes back. That's both on the YouTube channel if you want to watch it. It'll also show up on all the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google. You can get it on there. Just look for Good Talks. Those will be the interview-only portions of the program, something y'all asked for. We've been doing it. Y'all been responding to it. Come Monday morning, every weekday, if you're already subscribed, you will get Herd Tell every weekday morning, ready to go. It should be there by the time you wake up if you're on the East Coast of the U.S. or wherever you are across the street or around the world. So now that we got that all out of the way, let's get to the weekend. We hope you and yours enjoy it. We hope wherever you are, you're well, you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again Monday morning right here on Herd Tell. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.